So we're going to look at the third one of these. It's a parable called the Good Samaritan. Perhaps you are familiar with it. It's certainly a title we know very well, don't we, and a story we're probably familiar with. But one writer sort of says, I read recently, says, this is probably the most misunderstood parable in the Bible. But perhaps you do understand it correctly. Uh, let's, let's see. And maybe I'm getting it wrong, but I hope not. <laughs> okay, so let's, do, let's pray and ask that God will help us, and then we'll look at this parable together. Father, we do ask for your help as we open your word now together. Help us to understand and help us to be struck by the truths we read from your living word tonight. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, in preparing this talk... I felt utterly convicted. It was a little while back. I'd been in town during that week, and I had my bike with me, and I'd I'd sort of parked it up, and I thought I would go and get myself some lunch. And I went to one of these little Japanese places, and because it's very hard to cycle a bicycle with chopsticks and and food, I decided I would go on a walk around Kingston uh, and eat my lunch as I was walking along. I like to observe life. As I was walking along, though, I saw a sorry-looking figure sitting on the pavement, hunched over. And she was trying to make eye contact with as many passers-by as she could with the hopes of getting money from them. And so, I mean, this is not an unusual sight in Kingston, and the usual thoughts went through my head. Shall I go to her? Andy, shall we go to her? (laughs) It's that dialogue inside, isn't it? No, probably better not to. Usually these people, in my experience, they're struggling with mental illness. It can be really hard to talk to them, quite awkward. It could be time-consuming. On previous occasions, I've had really bad experiences, stopping and getting involved. People get angry sometimes. Uh, If I suggested getting her a hot drink, maybe she'd get annoyed with me for not giving her money, all of these sorts of things. Or if I gave her money, what would she use it for? So I'm worried about that as well. And so my thinking goes, well, no, probably best just to ignore and walk on. (laughs) Now, is that just me? Perhaps. (laughs) But I guess it's probably most of us from time to time. I'm not trying to justify myself, but I think there's something very real. We're uncomfortable in that situation, aren't we? See, the parable we just read, I hope you followed that story, it condemns us, doesn't it, on one level. Doesn't that story demand better from us than to just ignore and walk by? Well, yes, it does. And it should make us squirm when we realize it, when we read it and realize we're nothing like the Good Samaritan in that story, are we? And the kicker is, we ought to be. We ought to be like him. But that is not the real point of this story. That's not the real point. This is not... Uh, a story that Jesus told to inspire his disciples to do more humanitarian work, to go out and hug a homeless person. That's not why Jesus told this parable. And to to just get that from it, you'd be missing the real sting of it. And yet, a few weeks ago when I was looking for Bible study questions for our home groups on this very parable, I couldn't find a study that got anything else out of it. Half a dozen I looked at, they'd all come to the same sort of conclusions and they'd missed the point of the parable. The big application in just about every study of this, this parable seems to go something like this. Who are the people that you are most likely to ignore or turn away from helping? How could you show 
the kind of love to them that the Good Samaritan did? Well, those are good questions. I don't want to knock them, but that's not really the challenge Jesus was going for here. To get the real punch of this story, you need to look at the setting in which Jesus tells the story. What's going on here? Why did he tell the story? And it's not difficult to answer that question. Just look at verse 25 with me. Look at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So here is a lawyer, an expert in the law given by Moses. He's an expert. He's come to Jesus and he's asked a really important question. He's, he's one of a number of people that actually came to Jesus with exactly the same question, if you know the Gospels. It's a good one. It's probably the most important question that this man could have asked Jesus. What must I do, Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's basically asking, Jesus, how can I be sure I'm going to heaven? Isn't that what he's asking? After this life is over, how can I be certain I will receive eternal life from God? It's a great question. But look at how this man asks it. Luke tells us, first of all, in that verse, he stood up. He stood up. That is, he made himself the focus of attention of what was going around. He's standing up. He got the attention of the crowds, and then he, we're told, he asked a question. Why? To test Jesus. He's asking a question to test. This is not an honest inquiry from this man. This is an attempt to trap Jesus in his words, either to discredit Jesus or to get Jesus to somehow indict himself by what he says. To give the religious establishment just cause to go for Jesus, to arrest Jesus, which is what they want. Why has Luke included this little incident? Well, perhaps we get a clue if we look just a few verses back. But go back to verse 20 to get, get a picture of what's going on. And there we see Jesus has just sent out 72 of his disciples on a mission trip. And when they've returned, they're full of stories. They're bursting with enthusiasm. All the things that happened while they were out on their trip. They're very, very excited. You get this excited sense as you read it. They've seen God working through them in all kinds of different ways. Even, they say, even the evil spirits have, have, have obeyed their commands and left people that they possessed. That's wonderful, wonderfully powerful, isn't it? And seeing their, their excited enthusiasm, Jesus replies to them. He says, well, well, hang on. Do not rejoice, he says, verse 20. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but... Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's something to get excited about. Got that? Jesus has just declared to these men, to his disciples, that they have their names written in heaven. In other words, they will be inheriting eternal life. You see how it connects? They will inherit eternal life. And then Luke records Jesus praying for them in the very next verse. Verse 21. Listen to what he prays. At that time, Jesus, full of joy in the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you're pleased to do. Does that sound familiar? 
should be if you're getting the hang of these parables. That's the purpose of parables, remember? To hide truth in plain sight. To hide the truth from some, from, in these words, those who, who, who seeing do not see and through hearing do not hear or understand, as Jesus says in Matthew 13, whilst revealing it to people with ears to hear and eyes to see, namely his disciples. People humble enough to come up to him and say, Jesus, we didn't get it. Could you please explain it to us? The humble gain understanding. The proud, the wise and learned, they're left in darkness. Verse 21. And who, who epitomizes the wise and learned better than this man now standing right in front of Jesus? The expert in the law. Well, we're about to see just how blind this man is. The first hint we get is right there in verse 25. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man wants to know what he must do. Now, to ears familiar with the Reformation that happened in this country, the alarm bells start to ring at at that particular point. But let's not be too hard on this man. Because that's actually the default understanding that most people have about these things, isn't it? It's, why, it's actually why we jump to a, moral, a purely moral understanding of this parable. That's why we do it. Because we're wired this way. We want to know what we must do. To put it crudely, we want to know what it's going to take. What's it going to take to get into God's good books? That's what we want to know. Based on the assumption that God wants something from us. Because in this life, you don't get anything for nothing. God must just be like us. What's it going to take? What does measuring up to God's standard actually look like? That's what's behind this lawyer's question, this expert in the law's question. And Jesus answers in verse 26 by asking a question in return. This man is is obviously a self-styled expert in these matters. So Jesus replies, verse 26, well, what's written in the law? What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer reels off the standard answer straight from the pages of Scripture. Verse 27. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. He would have known that one just straight off pat. Sunday school answer. That's a good summary of the law that he's given right there. It expresses, actually, the heart of the Ten Commandments given by God on Mount Sinai. In the Ten Commandments, you've got these two tables of the law. It really, you can categorize the Ten Commandments into two sort of vague groupings. The first table of the law, the sort of first half, describes perfect love for God. Perfect love for the Lord God. And then the second half describes perfect love for your neighbor. Do not steal, do not murder, do not commit adultery, those sorts of things. How do I love God? No God's beside him. How do I love my neighbor? Well, I don't do all of these things that might, that might hurt my neighbor. It's, and this is a good summary, and it's a summary that we know Jesus approves on because Jesus uses this as a summary of what the law says as well. It came straight from the Old Testament. This is a textbook answer. He's an expert after all, isn't he? But what Jesus says next is a little surprising maybe to us. Look at verse 28. Here's a surprise. Jesus says, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. There you go. You can all go home now. 
He tells the man he's right. That all you've got to do is keep God's law. That's what you've got to do. Keep God's law. Keep it perfectly. And we cry out, wait, that's not the gospel. Well, hold on just a second. Hold on. See, Jesus is a master evangelist. He knows how to, how to get to people. He reads people's hearts. He knows how they tick. He can read hearts in a way you and I can't. And he, he's always able to ask the right kind of question to draw out the true agenda and get people to really think and see themselves. This lawyer epitomizes what I'm going to call the establishment. Okay? He is the established you know, the church of the day, the Jewish church of the day. He is the establishment, the religious establishment. The proud, Christ-rejecting religious elite who actually believe that they alone are righteous before God's sight. They are right with God. And this confrontation with Jesus has not worked for this man, so the man predictably has another shot at him. Look at what he says in verse 29. Look what, what uh, the commentator says. He wanted to justify himself. Okay, he's tried getting Jesus. Uh, Jesus has sort of got him there. And now he's, he's going to justify himself. And this is the reason Jesus tells the parable. In seeking to prove himself righteous and up to scratch, a keeper of the law, this man asks his second question. And look at what it is. It's very important, this. He says, and Jesus, who, who is my neighbor? Come on, be specific. Who is my neighbor? Now, there's a lot behind that question. There's a lot there. He says, just clarify for me, please, Jesus. Who specifically should I have in mind as those people that I love? Who are my actual neighbors as opposed to my enemies? Right? That's what he's really asking. How do I know that's what he's asking? Because Jesus has already dealt with, his, with this stuff in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, said this to his disciples, listen. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard it said, haven't you? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you will be children of your Father in heaven. That teaching, that teaching, that's the teaching of the religious establishment. And it betrays the way that those people defined neighbor. I.e., your neighbors are only people you really like a lot, right? That's your neighbor, it's people you really like. And they added the second half of that, of that piece of instruction about hating enemies based on the assumption that God must have implied that by saying the first half. If he says, love your neighbours, he must be implying, well, if they're, if they're not your neighbours, then hate them. If God has specified those you should love, your nearest and dearest, then you are free to hate everyone else, should you wish to do so. But Jesus destroys that notion by telling his followers, no, no, no. You are to love your enemies and pray for your persecutors even. Which incidentally is exactly what Jesus is doing right here with this man. He's an enemy, isn't he? He's trying to trap Jesus. And he's loving him by telling him the parable that follows. So this is an evangelistic opportunity. You see, someone cannot, and here's really what's going on with the story. Someone cannot be saved unless they first of all know they are lost. And how is this man going to know that he's lost? Here he stands, trying to justify himself. 
In this story, Jesus is about to define the enemy as a neighbour. And by, and by doing so, perhaps he'll be able to bring this proud man round to a realisation of his desperate condition. So let's look at the story. Now, we can feel quite self-righteous if we compare ourselves in the story of the, of the Good Samaritan to those, those two characters that passed by, can't we? The priest and the Levite. But in condemning them, what you're going to find is you actually will be condemning yourself. When you read this parable, you've got to be honest enough to see yourself in those very people. Because they are how we behave, I think, most of the time. Or at least some of the time. And perhaps you don't like hearing that. Well, this story starts with a man taking a journey. So you've got these characters in your head. So here's the first man. He's taking a journey. And we're told he heads out from Jerusalem which incidentally implies that he is Jewish. So that's quite an important point. Here is a Jewish man heading out from Jerusalem, and he's on a trip down to Jericho. He's going to Jericho. It's rough terrain, and it's winding roads, and it's about 17 miles, they say, and it descends about 4,000 feet. So it's a precarious sort of road. It's a dangerous road, and it's, and it's notorious as well in people's minds as they hear the story, notorious with robbers and thieves and bandits. And so predictably, this man gets jumped on the way. He's robbed, we're told, he is stripped and beaten severely. Verse 30 describes him, look, as half dead. He is at the side of the road, he is bleeding out, and without urgent medical attention, this man is going to die. Can you picture him lying there? He is beaten and sore and bleeding. Time is running out. Will there be any rescue for him? He's in a remote and dangerous place. What hope has this man got? And I guess the audience is sitting on the edge of their seats. But then there's a ray of hope. A ray of hope. A priest, says Jesus. Oh, and we... We breathe a sigh of relief. A priest, verse 21, just the man. Surely this man will show mercy and come to his aid. This is a man, this priest is a man who will be steeped in the scriptures. He, he might be a priest, but he knows what, what God desires more than any sacrifice. What does he desire? To act justly and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. That's what the prophets preached. He knew that he should, be, he should be merciful to people. He knows the law. Do you know, the law said that if this man was a donkey belonging to his enemy, he would be obligated to stop and help. Exodus 23, it's amazing, isn't it? Exodus 23, 5, if you see the donkey of someone you, who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there, be sure to help them with it. He knows the scriptures. He's a priest. He's steeped in the law. Here is an opportunity to show mercy. Here's an opportunity to be what you say you are. And this is, this is not even an animal. This is a man. Here's your opportunity. Yet Jesus tells us, verse 31, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Shocking. And not only that, verse 32, look, so to a Levite, here is a career temple worker, a descendant of the priestly line. Here he is. 
And when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side also. Two upstanding men of the establishment. There they are in the story. The religious elite versed in the law. They know the word of God. They profess to obey it and be all about it. God's people. Lovers of God. Admired by the people. Here they are. And they drop the ball. They come to the place where this desperate, miserable man lies, wallowing in his blood, fighting for life. They see the man, says Jesus. It's not that they just you know, didn't notice him. Jesus did the details. They see the man and they decisively cross over to the other side of the road. They get as far away as possible. There is no chance they're getting involved here. Now remember, Jesus is exposing the establishment. That is, the very group this lawyer standing in front of him is part of. And before you object, maybe Jesus is bringing out something about ritual cleanliness and these people are involved in temple service and maybe they, you know, maybe they were scared they'd get defiled. This is not an issue of cleanliness. These men are not concerned about how contact with this man might defile them. That's a red herring. Why do I say that? Because these men did not exist. They couldn't have been thinking anything. This is just a plot device. Jesus is commenting on how far short even the religious establishment has fallen. Perhaps not all, but characteristic of the whole institution. They show utter indifference. And listen, they didn't truly love God, the first part of the law, to love God. They didn't truly love God, because if you love God, you keep his commands. And they didn't follow the second part of the law, to love their neighbours. Because when they're confronted with a real urgent need of a, of, of a neighbour, an opportunity to show love, they refuse it. The whole law is smashed, isn't it? So we have now met two men, listen, who do not qualify for eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying, isn't it? That's what the very man has drawn out, Jesus has drawn that out of this man. Neither of those two deserve eternal life. And now Jesus introduces the Samaritan, the third, the third man. And it's hard to get across just how much Jews hated Samaritans. You know, the name Samaritan was used as an insult. Uh, perhaps when you look at, look at John's Gospel, chapter 8, you get some idea. Let me just remind you what happens there. In that chapter, Jesus has just had an argument with his Jewish audience, actually the religious establishment again, in which he has called them... He said that, that the devil is their father and they are children of the devil. I mean, how do you top that as being something horrible to have said about you, right? And what do they say back to Jesus? How do you top it? I'll tell you how you top that insult. John 8, 48, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying, you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? They know he's not a Samaritan. They just throw that one out. You're just a Samaritan. That's what you are. That's your problem. And you're demon-possessed. There was nothing as despised for the Jewish people as a Samaritan. They absolutely hated them. And yet, this is the man in the story who lavishes love and care on another person who would be considered to be his arch enemy. Have a look, have a look at how the story goes from verse 33. It's wonderful. And, and I'm going to pick up these details. So have a look. Verse 33, but a Samaritan as he travelled, came to where the man was. 
And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, two silver coins, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now you've got to realize Jesus is really laying this on thick. He is pushing this to the absolute limits. The Samaritan, this despised, dirty half-breed in their, in their eyes. Of all people, this man is filled with pity when he sees this injured man. He takes supplies from his own resources, his oil and his wine that he would have had for the journey, and he doesn't just dab it on sparingly, do you see? He pours it, disinfecting, soothing the wounds as best he can. And then he bandages him. He isn't going to be carrying bandages. He's ripping his clothes and bandaging it round all of his wounds. It's amazing, isn't it? And he puts the man on his own donkey. He's going to walk now. This man's going to ride. And he's going to walk. And he brings him to an inn. And he personally, look at the touch there, personally nurses him through the first night. Not going to leave his side till he knows he's sort of okay. He's on the road to recovery. It's not, even, it's not until the morning that he leaves. And when he leaves, let's look at what he does. He takes out two denarii, that's two days' wages, and he gives them to the innkeeper, telling him to look after him. Most commentators will tell you that's enough for two months' board and lodging. What a money, isn't it? And before he leaves, here's the absolute kicker. He tells the innkeeper, basically, spend whatever's necessary. Just, you know, I'll pick up the tab when I come back. He leaves an open tab for this man. Who does that? The answer is simple. No one does that. And that's the point. I wouldn't even do that for my boys. <laughs> the Samaritan, here it is. The Samaritan loves this man like he loves himself. And this is, this is exactly what you would do for yourself. You might do it for your nearest and dearest, but hardly ever for an enemy. I mean, that wouldn't even enter your thoughts, would it? Love without limit. Love without boundaries. Not just once in a while, Jesus is saying. Not just once in a while. Not just ten times, but constantly. That's the requirement that God has. For every case that comes across your path, that is what God requires of us if we are to qualify for eternal life. There it is. And now Jesus floors the lawyer with a final question in verse 36. So uh, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell to the hand of robbers? Which do you think it was? And the lawyer's cornered. <laughs> Even for a lawyer, he's cornered. He can only give one answer. Well, it's the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus twists the knife. Verse 37, Jesus told him, you go do likewise. You go do exactly the same. You go be the good Samaritan. Everyone who comes to your pathway. And listen, that's it. After that, at the end of verse 37, Luke, the writer, leaves a gap. And then, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, we're into the next piece of the gospel. Nothing more. It's the end. That's the end of the story. Nothing more about this man. 
how he responded, what he said, what he did. This is not a story designed to make us run out and hug a homeless person. Although that's a fantastic thing for people to do. That's okay. To care for people is is wonderful. And clearly, this parable reveals that justice and care for the vulnerable are issues very close to God's heart, and they are. But this is a story about salvation, something so much bigger. How do I get eternal life? How do I qualify for heaven? That's what this is dealing with. What does God require of me? What does God require of you? And the answer is perfection. Love him perfectly. Love him perfectly. Obey his word. And love others always just exactly the way you would love yourself. No difference. And we don't do it. And we can't do it. And so we are in serious need of forgiveness and grace from God because we don't keep it. We can't do it. This lawyer, and this is the irony, was standing in front of the only one person who could help him, who could forgive him. And as far as we know, he never asked for help. And I would beg with you, please don't make that same mistake. The truth is, no one can measure up consistently to the standard of the Good Samaritan. You'd be be silly to even try. No one can do that except one man. One man. The Samaritan is a work of fiction. If you want to see that kind of love for enemies consistently worked out in the real world, there's only one place you can look. You need to look to Jesus. The Apostle Paul summed up the good news about what Jesus has done for us like this. Listen, in Romans 5, please listen to this. In Romans 5, Paul writes this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, sunk, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might just possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That is love. That's good Samaritan love, isn't it? Jesus died for his enemies. On the cross, he gave his all, gave everything. All for a wicked humanity who needed saving. If that lawyer had only fallen down right there, admitted his wretchedness and asked for mercy, this could all have ended differently for him. And that is exactly what this story cries out for you and me to do also. You and I need to come to Jesus for mercy and for grace. This story is not about making us feel guilty that we don't give enough to the poor. It isn't designed to make people feel guilty for not taking care of those who are suffering. If you are not proud, if you've got ears to hear, you will hear the warning of this parable. You will never love God and you will never love your neighbour even sufficiently to qualify you for eternal life. You'll never do those good works. Instead of saving you, the law is just going to convict you and sign your death warrant. You and I need mercy. We need to come to Jesus for mercy. 
This story is designed to make people feel guilty for not loving God perfectly and not loving others perfectly enough, to feel the impossibility of doing so so that they might turn to the only one who can provide forgiveness for that sin and grant them eternal life. And my prayer is that all of us would have that heart and do that 